Well, it's time for our main Bible reading now, and we're picking up two kings from where we left off last week, chapter 3. Again, I'm reading from the ESV version. There are Bibles at the back if you need them. Two Kings, chapter 3, starting at verse 1, says this. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. And when Ahab died, the king of Moab (coughs) rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as you, your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Eden. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Eden. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king, then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Eden went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I will neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this stream, dry stream bed, full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom until the country was filled with water. When all the Merbites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armour, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. 
the kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth, and the slinger surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Well, do keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at that together. There's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. Some people find that helpful to follow or to make notes but by all means, do with it as you please. And at the end, uh, there will be the opportunity to ask any questions or comments. Um, So I mention that now so you can be thinking ahead. Excuse me, thinking ahead. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign. And therefore we pray now, as your people, that we would listen, trust and obey your word and therefore vindicate you for who you are. In Jesus' name, Amen. When two nations are at war, there is inevitably speculation as to what is going to happen. In particular, we want to know who will win. This is certainly true if we belong to one of the nations at war, because who wins will determine our future. But even if we're not one of the nations at war, who wins will have an impact on future events. And such wars and their victors can form a storyline to world history. For many of us, that was what was presented to us at school. The history of the world is a history of wars. We did the First World War. Then we did the Second World War. Some of us are doing it at this very moment. And then we did the Cold War. And then the Falklands War. And that's not to mention the Norman Conquest, or the Hundred Year War, or the Boer War although we might find those less interesting because they were further away from our experience. The history of the world is a history of wars. And one can track the storyline of the whole world as a history of conquerors and conquered. I mean, that's one way of putting world history together. So that who wins the latest war, well, tells us what the next page of that storyline will be. Who will win the war is a question that has been asked in the passage that we just read in Two Kings. Chapter 3 recounts a war between Israel and Moab. 
Moab rebelled against Israel, and as a result, Israel teamed up with Judah and went to war against Moab. And despite an uncertain start for Israel, it looked like Israel won the war against Moab until the very end when Israel is forced to withdraw. I wonder, what are we to make of this war? Now you'll notice that in the chapter there is mention of both Judah and Israel. And these two represent the divided kingdom of God. And the background to this is 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 11, God's king Solomon, who at the time reigned over the entire kingdom of God, all 12 tribes, yet because of his idolatry, the kingdom was torn in two as God's judgment. So we have this fractured kingdom consisting of Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And there becomes a running contrast between these two kingdoms for the rest of 1 Kings and throughout the book of 2 Kings. A contrast really defined by the character of their respective kings. The measure of the king in the north is Jeroboam. He was their first king. He was dreadful. As a result, 1 Kings 13, that kingdom Israel is doomed destruction. The measure of the king of Judah is David, and his significance, of course, is that he received the promises. 2 Samuel 7, the promise of an everlasting kingdom over which God's king would rule. So that what was happening with Solomon was discipline. It was not the end, it was the rod of discipline because it was Judah that had the promises. Judah will be the one to watch, as it were. And interestingly, the kings of Judah were always of the line of David, but in the north, they have whole dynasty changes. Now, you might be thinking that what actually happens, sorry, you might be thinking, what actually happens in the book of two kings, because all that happened way back in the book of one kings. Well, the book of two kings continues the succession of kings uh, of both kingdoms until at the end we have the destruction of Israel, as predicted, and Judah not learning and going into exile in Judah. Now, one of the things that we considered in 1 Kings is why is there this delay? Delaying God's hammer of judgment falling. Why is is it all so protracted and prolonged? Why do we have all these records? Well, the thing that delays it is the prophetic activity. See, we don't just have an account of this happened and then this happened and this king did but we get insights along the way into how to understand these events, of seeing these events the way God sees them, 
of learning about him and his purpose. Through this period of Israel's decline, God is making himself known through his prophets. Last week, we saw how Elisha had been authenticated as a prophet of God. And it's him who provides the insight into this war between Israel and Moab. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, hang on, if we're going to focus on the prophetic activity of Elisha, didn't Elisha end up speaking falsely? Didn't Elisha lead us to believe that Israel would be victorious, but they don't seem to be at the end? Well, let's have a look at what Elisha actually said. So 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 19, and among other things he said, And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Okay. And then when you read what actually happens in verse 25, let's skip on to verse 25, and they overthrew the cities, and on every piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. The author has chosen his words in verse 25 very carefully in order to show that Elisha's prophecy was fulfilled, even if the eventual outcome of the battle was not quite what we might have expected. Elisha's words were not, in fact, misleading. Everything that Elisha predicted happened. All the cities of Moab were attacked, all the good trees cut down, and so on. Elisha did not lie. But how then do we account for this jar in expectation? I take it that it's because a number of unwarranted assumptions have been made. Not least that Elisha has made a full disclosure of everything that was to happen. But that he hadn't given a full disclosure, Israel, and even the reader, is led to believe that the war is going to result in victory for Israel. It's it's the withholding of revelation that leads to this quite mistaken expectation about what would happen. The, The Lord did hand Moab over to Israel but only up to a certain point. After that, he handed Israel over to Moab. And, of course, total victory was never really on the cards if we listen to what God's prophets have previously said about the future of Israel. Now, I think this assumption can come about because we can be so used to God revealing himself that we assume that he is obligated to. And certainly, in this situation, why on earth would God give a full disclosure of his will 
to a wicked Israelite king destined for judgment. Revelation cannot be taken for granted just because it's the option that God so frequently chooses. What we're learning here is that the mark of a true prophet is to neither go further or less than what God has given them to say. The prophets do not control the prophetic word. It's something given to them by God. And Elisha says precisely what God has given him to say. And it reveals a certain presumption on their part that they think they know more than they do, that they know the affairs of the world. Well, before we conclude, let's have a look at verse 27. So I don't say something about this. You're only going to ask about it afterwards. Verse 27 uh, can seem confusing when we first read it. Uh, Let me just remind you of, of what it said. We'll pick it up from verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite uh, the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now, on first reading, we might think that God responded positively to the king of Moab's sacrifice, and that he came to Moab's rescue and then poured out his wrath on Israel. But when you look at the sacrifice that the king of Moab made, his oldest son, it makes you think again. Whilst child sacrifice was practiced for foreign gods, it was detestable in the Lord's sight. So this can't be what's going on then. And actually, the text doesn't say that the wrath against Israel is God's wrath. There's no mention of God at all. Well, whose wrath could it be? Well, there are a number of options for us to consider. Could it be the wrath of the Moabite god, Shemosh, In response to a child sacrifice made to this god, the god then acts to help Moab. Well, the only problem with this is, is that it runs totally counter to the whole thrust to the book of Kings, that the gods that the nations make up are not real, and therefore they are unable to help them when they're in need. Could it be the wrath of Israel? So that in response to the abominable abominable act of child sacrifice that Moab makes, Israel spurred on to destroy them. Well, whilst this could make sense, it's not supported by the text, for we're told that the wrath is against Israel. Well, the option left to us is that it is the wrath of the Moabites. That in response to their leader's act of sacrifice, they're spurred on to fight with renewed vigor against their adversaries. That is to say, it's the wrath of the Moabites that causes Israel to withdraw. Now, this is not to say that God is absent from this event. 
God's judgment frequently comes in the form of a number of adversaries that God raises up against Israel. God can use the nations of the world to execute his justice. God uses the rod of men. So I take it that the wrath of Moab is not unrelated to God's judgment on Israel, as we've been led to expect since the reign of their first king, Jeroboam. See, when we don't forget what God has previously said through his prophets, the apparent twist at the end of the war is actually to be expected and makes perfect sense. Well, we began by reflecting on how the history of the world is a history of wars. But is that how we are to view it? In many ways, it was our focus on the war between Israel and Moab that led to the mistaken expectation. We thought Elisha was telling Israel who would win the war. But that wasn't, in fact, what Elisha was saying. Elisha was saying what God gave him to say, and his disclosure was not centred on them. Unable to imagine purposes beyond their own, Israel misses that God's purpose might include both the defeat of the Moabites and the judgment of Israel. And that these two things would point to a bigger narrative to follow that's neither centred on uh, these two nations. Israel may have mistakenly put themselves at the centre of this revelation, but they were foolish to do so. 1 Kings 3, then, comes to us as a cautionary tale. It's always a mistake to think God's disclosure centres on us. God's disclosure focuses on him and his purpose for the world, the establishment of his kingdom and the enthronement and rule of his king. Whilst the storyline of the world might be the story of wars and its conquerors, but it's not the storyline of the Bible. And whilst we hear of wars and rumours of more wars, the Christian will always want to place that in the storyline that God has disclosed about his kingdom and his king. The story of the whole world is not a story of wars, but it's a story about the kingdom of God. Let's pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this cautionary tale in 1 Kings 3, where there is this mistaken expectation what will happen because uh, there is this presumption that the prophecy is all about them. Pray, please, that we would be quick to see how the prophets spoke, first and foremost, about you and your kingdom, and that they spoke extensively about that, and that we would read individual prophecies in the light of all that they said, and that we thank you how what they said 
serves us as we now know uh, the means by which that kingdom is now established and we wait for its consummation in uh, Christ's return. Um, so help us to uh, be warned from this um, chapter and to learn uh, to uh, see the storyline of, um, of the whole world as a storyline concerning your kingdom. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Okay. Anyone like to ask any questions or make any comments? You can't ask me about the uh, verse 27 now. I was there. Oh, there's still a question. Susie, go on then. Yeah, no, thank you. So just for the recording, a question about verse 27. <laughs> um, <laughs> when it said they withdrew, um, yeah, we to understand that as defeat or more just a kind of a bit less black and white. So yeah, I think, I think you're spot on, Susie. I think, um, well, this is a thing because although, and you notice how the king is compared What's the measure of the king of Jehoshaphat? No, Jehoram, king of Ahab, is Jeroboam, as we said, who was their first king, who was awful. And there is this little thing at the start which says he was just like his father, not quite as bad, but still pretty bad. Um, and so we we are expecting at some point there will be you know, defeat, that strong word, destruction, um, and again, that will come at the rod of men, namely the Assyrians, um, later in the book. So I think this is, yeah, this isn't, this is kind of on the way, as opposed to a, um, uh, yeah, a, a, a defeat. And I guess the, the issue is, is because Moab is rebelling against um, Israel. Israel's hoping to quash Moab because Moab isn't paying. You know the, the things that they should pay, and so that's all left in questions. Thinking, well, if they've withdrawn, you know, it, it's a it's a kind of a it wasn't a an, it wasn't a, an, a down and out win for Israel. But I think it's a funny one because I think there is it feels like it does set that expectation that we're not expecting that. We are expecting just the Moabites to be brought back under the rule of Israel, whereas you just think hmm, Israel actually withdraw the tail between the legs. Um, so yeah, I think we could just say, yeah, they withdrew. It's not, it's not a defeat, but it's not a victory. Which again is interesting, because you just think, if the question is who wins the war, neither of them win. And again, that further indicates the fact that it's not really about who wins. Actually, God's purposes are bigger than the victory of one of these particular nations. I think that adds to the whole... Um, we might be unsatisfied with that because there's no actual winner, but that 
almost indicates that there's something bigger going on that we want to discern and follow. Cool. Yeah, 27, verse 27? Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, so verse 18, one of part of what Elisha says, he will give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every forty and again that's kind of clarified by the fact that you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and you shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and every good piece of land with stones. So I think, we, I think we've got two options. You either think um, Elisha misspoke or spoke falsely and that actually um, the Moabites weren't given over to the hands, but then where does that leave Elisha as being an authenticated by a true prophet? Or, and I think this is what I mentioned in the, in the body of the sermon, that how that's clarified in terms of what does it mean for the Moabites to be given into your hands in terms of the felling of the trees, attacking the cities, that all happens. And so, you know, Moab was given over to Israel up to a point. Um, but this goes back to the whole thing that there's just not a full disclosure here. And the, the, the reason the false expectations come along, I think, is because we assume that that is... If you put it this way, that Elisha's answering a question that he's not answering. He's not answering the question, will Israel win? He's just saying... And it's a funny one, because you just think... I mean, Elisha's not particularly happy to speak anyway. Initially, he just says, I'm not one of your prophets. You go to your own prophets. And then even Jehoram, he still thinks he's a prophet, which is ironic, really, because he, um, he, uh, he thinks there's going to be defeat. And he's right. <laughs> even though he's not actually an authenticated prophet. Um, so I think, I think the way of putting it together is that the Moabites are given over into the hands of Israel, but it's just up to a, a point. And assumptions been made if we assume that that necessarily means total victory and it doesn't allow for um, Israel withdrawing. Is that okay? Yeah. Time for more? It's quite good working through 1 Kings. Tom and I were chatting earlier. I don't think I'd ever pick 1 Kings to preach on if you'd said, do you want to... Oh, I might now, actually. <laughs> but um, it's a funny one. But one of the things about working through whole books is that, well, it's 1 Kings 3, this 2 Kings 3 this week, and 2 Kings 4 next week. Go on then. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, go for it. Yes. Yes. 
So, if you go back to 1 Kings 22, so for the recording, the question about Edom, or I think some people say Edom, um, uh, 1 Kings 22, and verse 47. Uh, I've got that in my notes. Okay, let me, well, I'm, um, so basically, I mean, there might be a better place to go. Let me just tell you what I know, and then we can find out where it is. So basically, Edom is one of the, like Moab, is one of the surrounding nations. Um, and Basically, Edom was under the rule of Judah, and Moab was under the rule of Israel. So what we witness, and interestingly, if, if you look at how the book of 2 Kings starts, chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. So actually the whole book of 2 Kings begins with this rebellion of this, the Moabites against Israel. But at this point, Edom, oh yeah, sorry, verse 47 does help. Because it says, verse 47 of 1 Kings 22, there was no king in Edom, a deputy was king, Jephot, oh, a deputy was king. Oh. Well, basically, I think that king is under the rule of um, Jehoshaphat, who is basically, so basically it's like a puppet king in Eden who is subservient to um, Judah. So I think that explains why, you know, they go in 2 Kings 3, you know, they go about this circuitous route. And did you notice that on the way they just pick up, um, they pick up the king of Eden in verse 9. And I think that's because if the king of Judah has joined them, then you get the king of Eden for free. Because basically, I think they want to go through Eden because they can... It's more tactical to invade the Moabites from the south, but on the way they can pick up effectively allies or sort of subjugated nations. Um, there's probably another reference, unless anyone's. Tom, can you. You're aware of another reference? No. I don't think verse 47 quite does it. It just says there's no king in Eden, a deputy was king. It doesn't say the relationship with. Oh, Nathan, gone. Um, 2 Samuel 8, 13, 14. So it says this, these are King David dedicated, these also King David dedicated the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Yeah, that's helpful. So when the, as well, and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down the 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Eden. Throughout all Eden, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Brilliant. There we go. And I guess Judah, even though the kingdom's been fragmented, Judah 
inherits, you know, that, that's part of their spoils, as it were. Cool. Great. All right, we'll leave it there. We're going to sing again a uh, beautiful song, inviting one another to come behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel.